Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I'm excited today to have a show about global health. I have with me a CA3 resident from Texas A&M Scott & White Memorial Center, uh, Medical Center in um, Texas, and that is Dr. Matt Danley, and he is going to tell us a lot about some really interesting work he's done and some uh, thoughts he's put into the whole issue of global health and global surgery. I think it's going to be really interesting. Matt, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be here. So, Matt, let's talk about, uh, you know, one of the ways this kind of came about was that you have taken a trip relatively recently to Kenya. I think it was your first global health trip. Um, so tell me a little bit about how that trip came about and what you did while you were there. Sure. So this was a trip that I took September of last year. Uh, it, it was one of those rare serendipitous events that just more or less fell into my lap. And it was a, a situation where you just kind of had to say yes to it because it was, it was really everything that I feel, or at least I felt at the time and still feel that global health should be about. Uh, I was working, um, I was doing my pediatric rotation. I was on a Saturday call uh, with one of our pediatric staff who had been to Kenya several times, uh, Dr. Jolene Bean. Uh, she worked closely with uh, Dr. Newton, who is the site chief for Vanderbilt at Kajabi Hospital in Kenya. Uh, we were out on a beautiful uh, March day, and she was telling me about this amazing opportunity to go to Africa. And the, the part that really part, uh, piqued my interest was it wasn't a go provide a service, you know, come back and, you know, that's it. Uh, the point of the mission in Kajabi is education. So I went, uh, followed my CA three year, and what I did was I was an educator. And I gave four lectures in the morning covering topics that I'm interested in, like cardiac mechanics and pulmonary hypertension. And we did case conferences that covered common problems that they see, like pain control for total joints and craniotomies for uh, TBIs and, and brain tumors and the such, which are fairly common procedures that uh, they do there. 
And uh, it was it was a fantastic experience. It was completely different from what I had originally pictured a short-term medical mission trip being, going, providing care, leaving, and getting that, you know, experience of having that international experience, which is valuable. Uh, but really, um, I questioned in those types of, of um missions, you know, what, what is the long-term lasting effect that I'm causing? And am I really trying to get at some of the problems? Am I really solving any major uh, worldwide global surgery access problems with those types of missions? And, you know, by and large, we don't. You know, short-term missions that are focused on providing a single service and then coming back, I, I feel, at least in my opinion, miss a big overarching problem in the world, which is we just don't have enough anesthesia providers particularly in Southeast Asia and uh, Sub-Saharan Africa. When you, when you think about uh, where we live in the United States, you know, we have well over 20 anesthesia providers per 100,000 population, well over, and, and certainly in bigger metropolitan areas, that number may be 40 or higher. Uh, when you look at somewhere like Kenya, Somalia, Uganda, Tanzania, uh, these these are countries that have millions of people, you know, 40-some-odd million people in Kenya, and they have 0.44 anesthesia providers per 100,000 people. There's just not access. And one no. of the ways that we as, you know, um, as educators and as anesthesiologists and anesthesia residents, one way that I feel we can really affect the world is go around and actually train and provide training for these Kenyans and Ugandans and Tanzanians on how to uh, how to take care of themselves and build their own workforce. So, Matt, yeah, let's delve into this a little bit because I think this is really interesting. So, do you are you distinguishing between a trip where you would go and provide care personally, and then that compared to a trip where you're going and educating people there to provide care? Correct. Uh, I th- when you look at most of short-term medical missions, and short-term medical mission is usually anything less than about four weeks. Uh, four to eight weeks is kind of the top end for a what would be considered a short-term medical mission. And those, by and large, uh, a lot of them are faith-based. And I would say prior to maybe 50 years ago, the vast majority were faith-based organizations, such as Christian organizations that are sending missionaries to do this type of work, Catholic organizations, etc., and they do provide um, access, which is which can be a benefit. But the the real issue in some of these, in most of these areas that we're talking about, is just the lack of infrastructure, the lack of the lack of a healthcare delivery network, the lack of a workforce that can provide this or this service year round, and uh, really build the economy in that country where you're working. So my that's. I always had a, a bit of a reservation about just going and providing a service. I think there's there is some value there, but for me, the economics I just couldn't make couldn't make it make sense in my head about why uh, it was okay for me to go and provide a service where uh, most of those um, services are kind of output based. You know, we want to go and raise X number of dollars, provide X number of surgeries, and really, it, it's kind of a tertiary. Um, goal is, or maybe not even goal at all, of, of actual data collection and following the outcomes and, and how we're affecting the local economies, which is just not really that well known. Uh, the, we're, we are getting a huge push towards um, having more data collection uh, in certain rural parts of the world where we're doing these type of events, but 
Uh, for me, it just this this type of uh, trip that is much more focused on focused on educating and building the global educational capacity um, for Kenyans to take care of Kenyans or Ugandans to take care of Ugandans just made so much more sense to me and, and was a real, real just blessing to be a part of. Yeah, that sounds like a great opportunity. So I want to tell me a little more because I think some people out there are going to say, okay, you know, I absolutely get that going and teaching people to provide care for their own, for their own people is a great thing to do. But mm-hmm. what, but if I want to go and, and do two weeks of, you know, surgeries, um, that wouldn't have been done if I hadn't gone, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, isn't that good for those people who got the surgeries? Um, and so is the, now do you tell me if I'm wrong, but is the idea that yes, of course that's good in the short term, but that if instead of that you were providing education, then, you know, kind of like the teach a, teach a man to fish, right? You're going to affect much more and long-term over time. Uh, you know, I think if you talk to, um, it's my opinion, I think if you talk to, to people that uh, physicians that are, you know, make a, a, a passion, a lifelong career out of this, that you, most, most of them would say, you know, it really requires long-term commitments. And for it to instill real lasting change, that, that requires uh, significant investment. If, uh, if you're a resident, you want to go, or you're staff, and you want to go to you know, Haiti and provide uh, anesthesia for uh, surgery, and there's no other anesthetic providers there, then of course, you're, you're increasing access. But are we really changing the underlying fundamental problem in that country for mm-hmm. a lack of access to care? And I think as long as you approach missions and with that mindset that I'm going to go and provide the service, but I, as a auditor of what I'm doing, uh, want to make sure that if we're doing surgery, there's proper follow-up and it's not just day one through three follow-up. It's how are you doing three months out or how are you doing two weeks out? And sometimes that's really hard because these are very transient patient populations and it's hard to really gather that data. And if you're an NGO and and trying to fundraise to go and provide surgeries, uh, you're probably not going to fundraise a lot to actual perform, actually perform data collection, at least long-term data collection on these transient patient populations. So it's, a, it's an inherent difficulty in the short-term medical mission mindset of trying to have long-term data and, and outcomes data and really changing the mindset to we need to be an output, you know, uh, generating organizations to we need to focus on outcomes. Uh, which, right. which is the whole point of education, that long-term commitment. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So tell me a little more about the trip. What were some of the things that surprised you? This was your first uh, global trip, I think, right? So were there things that you saw or learned about that you hadn't anticipated? I was immensely surprised and impressed by the culture in Kenya. Uh, the the great aspect about Kenya is it was a it was an English colony uh, until you know into the 20th century. So everybody speaks English as uh, the language of business. Uh, they speak Swahili as conversational language, and then they have tribal tongues. But every every person I walked by in the operating room or in the theater uh, when I was walking around helping out stopped, asked who I was, asked how long I was there. When I told them you know I was going to be here for two, two and a half weeks, they say, oh, it's not long enough. You should stay longer. We're glad you're here. Thank you for being here. Whenever I would give uh, lectures in the morning, it like eyes glued on me the entire time, uh, which mm. in today's time, you know, with, with the, you know, 
24 second news cycle and you always have to be checking your phone. It was just incredibly eye-opening to see how humble, welcoming, um, and uh, teachable um, these Kenyan registered nurse anesthetist students are and just how hungry for knowledge because they realize, you know, it's an 18 week or 18 month program for them to become an anesthesia provider that's licensed to practice independently in, in the country of Kenya. So they understand that at the end of their training, they're going to go and they're going to face uh, traumas. You know, 90% of the world's uh, trauma deaths are in Africa. You know, roads are more deadly than mosquitoes in Africa. Uh, there's a lifetime mortality rate for pregnancy in Africa, about one in 40. So there's a lot mm. of obstructive labor cases that are not going to turn out well. So they, they're very aware of the challenges that they face and a limited resource setting. So anybody that goes there tries to offer them uh, any type of education. It was just mind-blowing how receptive uh, they were. It was, it, it was pretty amazing. That's great. Well, let's talk about the resources. So, you know, what, when you, let's, let's start with the providers themselves. So what, you mentioned these are um, CRNA students. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that the bulk of the providers, both in Kenya and the developing world, or who's providing anesthesia care? Are there anesthesiologists, CRNAs, are there others? Yeah, so that's a good question. Um, So there's a varying definition of what an anesthesia provider actually is in uh, different parts of the world, and this might be surprising for some, but there are uh, are physician anesthesiologists in Kenya uh, there's about 46 million people that live in Kenya, and there's about 200 physician anesthesiologists. Uh, so a, a drop in the bucket. Uh, nurse anesthetists are there. They're, these are the Kenyan registered nurse anesthetists. So this is a program that was started by uh, Dr. Newton and Kajabi, and now they have a couple satellite uh, uh, areas of uh, education as well. Uh, there's maybe 100, uh, 120 maybe nurse anesthetists, and that, that number is going to increase. Uh, fairly substantially due to the work that uh, that he's doing there, and those were the some of the students that I had the pleasure to meet and to to work with. And then there's this whole host of other anesthesia providers in these rural parts of these countries, and that's actually the the bulk of the anesthesia providers in in Kenya, at least uh, the World Federation of Societies of Anesthesia, you know, has has this data that they've collected, and most of you know about 500 of the uh, 800 anesthesia providers in Kenya are actually qualified as, quote, other anesthesia providers. And these can be as, as uh, you know, simple as a nurse, you know, maybe not even has an RN degree, uh, someone that is a healthcare, quote, provider that took a five-day course for uh, emergency anesthesia with ketamine. And if you have someone come in with uh, a traumatic brain injury and, you know, kind of a random you know, small part of the country, even if they could do neurosurgery, you know, your only anesthesia provider might be someone that only uses ketamine. Um, It it could go from that all the way to a medical school graduate that's had six months of emergency obstetric anesthesia for rural practice. So the only thing that person is really trained to do is obstetric anesthesia, which in in Kenya, as we talked about, is very important. Um, The Kenyan Registered Nurse Anesthetist Program is you have a nursing degree um, and you... uh, do some work in uh, a critical care setting. You apply uh, for a position just like you would, it's kind of would seem very similar to what you would try to do in the United States. And then they, they actually go through an entire comprehensive training program, which makes them similar to what uh, you, would, you would think of as a, 
maybe a novice uh, CRNA here. Uh, I would say novice, but you'd be surprised with how amazing they, uh, how well they cope, I should say, with the limited resources they have. Um, and of course, all the way up to the four, you know, well, they, they have MBBSs or it's kind of a British system there. So about six years mm-hmm. of medical school. And uh, then you can, of course, do your postdoc training as well. So there are some small number, did you say four uh, anesthesiologists? There's about 200 uh, physician anesthesiologists, um, somewhere in the maybe mid-hundreds for nurse anesthetist providers, and that, that will increase with increasing uh, education production there. And uh, maybe about 450 to 500 of these other anesthesia providers that fall anywhere on a wide spectrum of what they're trained to do. Interesting. All right. So there are people with very little training using kind of what they've got, but doing the job that, that no one else yeah. can do, right? Yeah. Um, I, I had this, uh, uh, during one of the uh, case conferences I was doing, I had this uh, Somali uh, student that was, she was a senior. So she had done a year in Kajabi in Kenya and then went back to Somalia for her uh, kind of last six months of training in one of her community hospitals. Uh, and she, um, we were talking about ICP and traumatic brain injury and, and, you know, how you think through that. And she comes over Skype and she's like, Hey, you know, I've got, um, rocaronium, succinylcholine, ketamine. The only volatile agent I have is, um, halothane. Um, I've got versed and fentanyl. Um, but if, if I need to do an anesthetic, you know, how do I do this? And Mm. you're, you're looking at that and you're trying to think, you know, well, you, you would never use ketamine. You wouldn't want to. Uh, you really don't want to use halothane, so it's a, it's a great it was a great experience for me because it really puts you outside that comfort zone where now you're having to think about okay, I I'm not in Kansas anymore. You know we got to figure out how you're going to do this safely. Uh, right. Thankfully, you know talking with them, they're incredibly bright, incredibly bright, and they realize that this is a problem and I need to learn how to do this. Which goes back to my point about just how receptive and uh, hungry they are for information. That's really interesting. So when when you're thinking about and you know, let's say people out there may think, you know, I'd love to do a trip like this. What advice do you have for people? What do they want? What do you want to keep in mind when you're getting ready to go? When you're setting up for a trip like this? What is there anything that you think? Oh, if I could go back to before I left, I would do it differently. Mm-hmm. I think uh, I was incredibly fortunate, um, incredibly fortunate, because Kajabi is a uh, international elective rotation site for. Uh, both Vanderbilt residents, anesthesia residents, and surgery residents, and uh, Temple University in Philadelphia also uh, has international elective there. So the um, framework for uh, and the logistical support to get me to from the airport to a grocery store to where I was staying, they have dorms on the site, which you know helps with housing. I think that that is. Um, I was incredibly fortunate in that aspect because if you don't have that type of infrastructure already set up, then it can certainly, you don't want to be in, especially a conflict ridden area. You would never, you know, do that in say in Somalia or Yemen. I don't think most of us would ever want to go to those places, at least not right now. Uh, But having that infrastructure already in place was hugely beneficial uh, for me. And that's what I would actually recommend. If this is going to be your first trip, uh, go with the group. Uh, go somewhere that's established and that is fulfilling a need and a mission that you uh, ethically agree with. And that may be, you know, my, my wife's a speech therapist and going down and doing Operation Smile in Peru was a huge eye-opener for her. 
And, but if, if you're doing those types of things, which is fantastic because in, you know, in South, uh, South America, having cleft lips and palates are, are really, there's an aesthetic issue that these people are shunned. It's also a speech impediment. Um, and when you go realize that one of the most important things to do is, you know, even though you're providing the service and you need to be cognizant about what it's doing to the local economy and how to provide appropriate follow-up for those patients, but also understand what the patient wants to get out of it. Uh, in many parts of South America, you know, the aesthetics isn't the primary concern. The primary concern is I need to be able to talk. So if, and I, I want my speech to be more fluent. So if you go on a trip and you're providing, um, say you're an ENT or you go with ENTs uh, to do these cleft lip and palate repairs or plastic surgeons, realize that if, if the main goal of the patient that you're providing that care for is to be able to talk and you don't have a speech therapist there that can help provide that therapy postoperatively, then you're providing a service, but the patient isn't, isn't benefiting to the point where they want to be you know, benefiting. And right. we should we should be cognizant of that that you know we're pr- going to provide these services, but we we also want to make sure that the patient just like if you were a, you, if you're in Maryland, you know the service that you're providing, you want the patient to get their goal about undergoing a surgical procedure and having the postoperative pain to deal with. So making sure that we're actually addressing the patient's need uh, is an important aspect whenever you're deciding you know where to go and and which trips to take. Right. And you mentioned Operation Smile. There's also Operation Rainbow, Doctors Without Borders. There's a variety of these well-known um, groups. Yes. Do you recommend uh, people look into those uh, if they're looking? You know, I, 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 I certainly haven't um, looked through all of them, and, and I don't have one in particular. I, I elected not, since there was such great infrastructure already set up for Kajabi, I elected not to go through any sponsoring entity and right. went just with Dr. Bean and, and kind of did everything by myself with a huge amount of support from the uh, hospital staff there at, at Kajabi. Um, but Samaritan's Purse was one that was fairly common, at, the, at least at that institution. It's a faith-based organization that uh, has placed longer-term missionaries there. I believe there is a family practice doctor there and an ENT surgeon. Uh, the family practice doctor, I believe, was from Waco and the ENT from Detroit. And they were both there on two-year-long missions. And I believe they were both sponsored by, um, by you know, faith-based organizations like uh, Samaritan's Purse. So it, you certainly, even if you didn't want to go and do, you know, that long of a trip, uh, you know, sponsoring those institutions by donations or, you know, supply donations or things like that uh, can be beneficial as well because you're helping support a long-term missionary that is there that's going to provide follow-up for years. And th- there there are ENT residents that rotate at that hospital that are being trained by American um, surgeons, which is, again, building that global uh, workforce uh, for good. Right. That sounds great. So you had mentioned to me uh, the Lancet Commission report from mm-hmm. 2015. Mm-hmm. You want to say a few words about that and why that was important? Yeah, I, this is uh, once I got back, I just kind of fell in love with this idea of increasing global educational capacity and how can I really get plugged into um, into the teaching aspect of this. And w- what I came across was this uh, this idea that you know over the past 25 years, global health as a whole has had 
substantial gains. Uh, but unfortunately, that progress hasn't really trickled over into surgical access. Uh, surgical care for low and middle income countries hasn't really grown at all, and uh, fatality rates are still very high for even as common conditions as hernias and appendicitis and fractures and obstructive labor. Uh, even breast and cervical cancer have uh, higher mortality rates than, than what we'd ever imagine in, in the Western world. Uh, and when you look at where we spend most of our, well, where we spend a chunk of global health dollars, uh, there are certainly important areas such as HIV, which kills, you know, one, one and a half million people per year. TB, tuberculosis and malaria both uh, kill about 1.2 million people per year. But when you look at surgical causes of death, you know, surgical causes account for about 17 million people per year. And that's an area in which, you know, it's, it seems expensive. And I think that's the main barrier whenever I, I talk to people about surgical care. It's like, well, yeah, but you need a hospital. You need uh, anesthesia providers. You need nursing care. And there are, there are definitely needs uh, to provide safe surgical care, including equipment and supplies. Kajabi, a lot of the supplies is reused. You know, the LMAs get washed and sanitized. The circuits get washed and sanitized. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so there is certainly a need there. You need to have sterilization capacity so that you can, what equipment you have to, provo to provide, you know, these, you know, bellwether procedures, as they call it, you know, laparotomies, C-sections, and treatments for open fractures. You have to be able to sterilize them. You have to have a blood supply. You know, there's how do you how do you do a blood bank in rural uh, Ethiopia? You know, it's there's there's definitely um, problems with some aspects of these, but you can you can have um, you can have access without all of the needs, but the needs are are certainly certainly real. When, when you're looking at all of the different problems and all the different goals for the Lancet Global Commission, there's really, you know, five big uh, key messages. There's about five billion people in the world that don't have access to safe, affordable surgical care. And the, the big problem is safe and affordable access. Uh, we need about 143 million additional surgical pre procedures per year uh, and about... 33 million individuals will face catastrophic health expenditure due to payment. So you can have access. You can have this, you know, multi-million dollar blood bank in the middle of, you know, uh, Uganda. But if pa if patients have to spend their entire year's salary to make it to your hospital, then is that really access? And it's right. it's not. So you have to have the you you have to have government buy-in for these to really. Uh, fulfill these needs to, to make this a, a realistic uh, a goal for, for individuals. Um, but when you look at the actual cost, uh, investment in surgical anesthesia services, it is affordable. And when you look at the difference in, you know, what we spend for malaria nets, for, for example, uh, we spend maybe between six to 20 bucks per uh, disability life adjusted, disability adjusted life year prevention from malaria using bed nets. Uh, you could spend about $13 for a circumcision and also prevent the same amount of disability-adjusted life years. Because whenever we provide uh, circumcisions, we reduce the risk of STD transmission, penile cancer, um, 
and the like. So they're, it's just as cost effective. When we do cleft lip and palate repairs, it costs about $48 uh, compared to a BCG vaccine, which is about 50 to 200 depending on where in the world you are. That's uh, the same way with general surgery, $80 per disability life adjusted year. Hydrocephalus surgery, $100 per life adjusted year. Uh, orthopedic surgery. So when you think about a young, healthy man that works on a farm, um, whenever you that individual has a, a broken arm and now becomes disabled and can't work anymore, that is a huge, I mean, that's a huge hit to that community. Uh, that individual may have been supporting his entire family, may have had six people living at home that now he can't support. So pro right. by providing these types of uh, procedures, you know, it really is a cost-effective um, uh, investment. Yeah, and then even more so, obviously, if you're educating the local community of how to provide these procedures yeah. themselves, then you know, you're really expanding access even more. Exactly. And when you got back from your trip, you actually started a global outreach program. Tell me a little bit about that. It, was it these kind of um, thoughts and, and the findings from that commission report that made you want to kind of continue to be more involved? It did. Uh, I, you know, I grew up in a house of educators. You know, my mom's a teacher. My dad uh, has coached me and all my brothers through years and years and years of uh, baseball. So I, I came from a family of educators, and what I really wanted to spark in at least our residents here and in the staff was this idea that you can be you can be a part of something that is as big as increasing global educational capacity on a worldwide scale. Uh, it you obviously have to start small, and you have to start with just getting uh, educating people that this is something that is available. Um, so what what we decided to do is um, start the Baylor Scott and White Global Outreach Program. Uh, the idea of which being send uh, one or two residents per year at, you know, it's, thankfully it's kind of a self-selecting process. They have to be vetted by um, our program director and such. And I, I want them to have the ability to have the same type of trip I did, but not have to, I don't want them to have to worry about, you know, can I buy, you know, diapers for my kid this month, or can I go have this amazing life-changing um, experience educating and, you know, building the global educational workforce, you know, global anesthesia workforce uh, right. during residency. So the, the whole point is to provide matching grants for those residents that uh, want to go. And eventually, over, over the course of several, several years, I, I hope that this continues to grow into other departments. And uh, certainly when we talk about the bell, other procedures, Laparotomies, C-sections, open fractures are all kind of the major uh, points that you need to have to have safe surgical uh, care or access to care. So um, getting uh, general surgeons, orthopedic surgeons, obstetrics, even uh, family medicine, if they feel comfortable doing C-sections and are trained to do those here before they go overseas, uh, would be uh, a, a branching out for, for us in the future. But finding somewhere we can build a long-term relationship to... Um, you know, provide that long-lasting uh, commitment is is definitely what what we're trying to do. Yeah, that's fantastic. And where are you um, doing the fundraising? How are you coming up with the money to give these matching grants? That's that's a great question. A lot. Of, I've had significant um, support from the staff here uh, that have you know really decided that they want to make this a priority. Um, there's also some local community, uh, leaders here temples, you know, a small town. Uh, so if you, um, start
start something, a lot of times you, you'll have people that will come on board and, and really try to make sure it, it, it gets done and sees it through. So I've, I've had good support from community members and uh, a lot of the staff here. It's, I feel like a lot of it, there's certainly grants available outside that realm, but I, I feel like since this is so new that I certainly want, uh, you know, the individuals and the, the, uh, places that we're going to see that this is something that Scott and White as a, as an anesthesia department and as staff and as residents, we all support and want to be part of this. And we see the value and, and we're, we're investing in that value. Yeah, that's fantastic. So, this is great, Matt. I think, you know, really inspirational work that you've done and are continuing to do, trying to empower and, and support others in doing the same kind of work. I love the message that really thinking about not just providing services, but providing education is really key. Are there other things you'd like to leave uh, folks with about the work you're doing? Well, I think um, if anybody's interested in, in actually diving through uh, the Lancet uh, Commission on Global Surgery, uh, there, there, are cert- there are briefs on the website, so you don't have to you know, kind of dive into the full, full commission report. Uh, but you can find that at lancetglobalsurgery.org. Uh, and they have case studies for areas like Zambia and India and Capo Verde on there. Uh, there's also a, an NGO that's also very uh, involved in um, accessing or working with uh, countries for safe surgical care, which is called safesurgery2020.org. And they uh, have case reports, and they're working in Tanzania, Ethiopia, and Cambodia. And then, if you if all this sounds really good to you, and you want to be involved, but you you are working, you just can't, you know, uh, you don't have the time to really devote uh, a month or two months going and doing something like this. You know, you might have young kids at home. Uh, an easy way to to be involved in this thing is something as simple as Lifebox. So Lifebox.org they provide pulse oximeters. Uh, in over a hundred companies, a hundred countries, excuse me. And you can imagine, you know, trying to provide an anesthetic without a pulse oximeter is terrifying. Um, mm-hmm. and likewise, uh, providing, you know, doing surgery when the lights go out, which happens daily, uh, is also very difficult. So they have a couple different donation levels, a hundred dollars. You can, uh, provide a surgical light for uh, a surgeon that can, it's battery powered, they can keep operating for an expeditious procedure if the electricity goes out, which is a common occurrence. Uh, $250 buys a, a very robust pulse oximeter. So even just doing something as easy as that, it can really make a significant difference. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I remember uh, some of the folks where I was a, a resident at UCSF were very involved. Um, with Lifebox and it's a great organization. Yes, and um, the, yeah, the, I was just going to say they um, I have immense immense uh, respect for uh, everyone at UCSF. They they put on them and Dr. Newton and uh, they put on a great uh, kind of global health global surgery symp- uh, symposium type of a uh, thing at ASA this past year. So if if you are interested in learning more about this and after you dive into this, there's always global health. Um, lectures and, and panels at the ASA every year, which uh, uh, at least they have in the past couple of years. So hopefully that keeps going and only continues to grow in the future. So that's another another way you can get involved. Yeah, that's great. And there are actually also global health fellowships. So a good friend of mine from residency, uh, Dr. Mike Lipnick, who is uh, at UCSF, um, runs a global health fellowship program they have there. It's really interesting. You kind of, I think, spend about half the year abroad doing really uh, robust 
global health work, and then the other half at uh, UCSF as a faculty member. Um, so you get uh, an appointment on faculty there. You, you're not an ACGME fellowship, so you get paid more than you would as a as an ACGME fellow, and you get to really dive in with with some support to global health work and research. So that's really interesting stuff that they've got going on there too, and I'm sure others do as well. Absolutely, I, I'm already doing one fellowship in adult cardiothoracic, and was planning on a second, but my wife told me that that was a no go. So I will. I'm happy yeah. with my my one fellowship that I'll be doing next year. That's right. At some point, the training yeah, has at some to point stop. has to stop. Um, well, that's fantastic, Matt. Thank you so much. This is really great stuff. And uh, I'm sure people will be looking at these links that we've, um, we'll put in the show notes, the ones you mentioned, and uh, they may have questions they can post uh, on the website for you that um, about how to get more involved. So thanks for coming on the show and thanks for the work you're Excellent. doing. Thank you so much. I very much appreciate the opportunity. All right. That was great. I learned a ton and I hope you did too. Go to the website, ACRAC.com. You can leave a comment that we can all see and learn from. Let us know what global health work have you done. Are there things that you would add to what Matt has had to say? If you have other organizations you've worked with that you like, you can leave us that information as well. Of course, if you are a fan of the show, please consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating. It helps others find the show. And if you'd like to support the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show, even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge. It makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. Also, of course, you can go to paypal.me slash ACRAC, that's P-A-Y-P-A-L dot M-E slash A-C-C-R-A-C, and you can make a donation anytime, anyplace that you'd like. It is much appreciated. Thank you so much to those who are already patrons and have already made donations. We really, really appreciate it. A big shout-out, as always, to Brian Park for the outlines he's done for many of the shows. Thank you, Brian. Our original music is produced by Dr. Dennis Quo. Check out his website at studymusicproject.com. Thank you, Dennis. And that is going to be it for today. Thanks so much for listening. For the ACRAC Podcast and Dr. Matt Danley, I'm Jed Wolfaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. 
every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.